Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, social media companies have a lot of power. And I don't think, frankly, they want this power, but right now they have a lot of power, and we're trying to decide how best to structure that. David Ryan Polgar is a leading voice in the areas of tech ethics, digital citizenship, and what it means to be human in the digital age. Is that perfect or what? David is a global speaker, a regular media commentator for national and international press, and a frequent advisor and consultant on building a better tech future. He is the co-host and co-creator of Funny as Tech, a New York City-based podcast and occasional live show back in the pre-COVID days, at least, <laughs> that deals with our messy relationship with technology and is the founder of All Tech is Human, an accelerator for tech consideration and hub for the responsible tech movement. David serves as a founding member of TikTok's Content Advisory Council, along with the Technology and Adolescent Mental Wellness Program. One of my faves, one of my faves, and I know he's a lot of your faves too, because when I made the announcement that he was going to be on the show this week, there was much rejoicing. Thank All you right. so much well, for being here. No, thank here. you. And you should have mentioned too, you were also a guest live on stage in New York for Funniest Tech. So I always appreciate it, <laughs> uh, not only kind of how you're right operating on the intersection of tech and humanity, but you also, uh, you know, apply certain levity to that. And I think that's what we need. So that's what I've been really enjoying watching uh, the Tech Humanist show so far. So uh, thrilled to be a guest. And I know we have a lot to talk about. So that's we why do. we have a, Yeah, we do. We really hour. do. I think we're doing this for seven hours, right? This seven is a, hours is seven the hours. plan. Yeah. Seven so hours. I hope yes. I hope you're all out there in the audience land, like really Stop ready to go. Seven <laughs> hours. You Get yeah, your energy fun. drink. You know, uh, you need two of the five hour energy drinks and then you'll have a little leftover. I think very few people know that I actually tried to start a podcast about three years ago. I got a few recordings in and then I was hit by a car. And so mm. I put, put the project aside and I didn't come back to it. But few people know that my very first guest was the David Ryan Polgar that you see here today. But David, I don't know if you remember this, but <laughs> I went back and listened to that audio. It would be interesting to go back to see how the other day. changed, right? <laughs> you did go back. Wow. The archives. And I found something. I found something uh -oh. very funny. Given, given what happened to me a few months after uh, uh, we got started, I don't it, know. If let's say if, if, if somebody is un a bad driver. Can you all hear this? That doesn't mean they shouldn't drive a car. There's, there's car accidents all the time. It doesn't mean that, that you don't teach Johnny or Sally how to We are talking about the car driving analogy. Uh, because I think... Of social media and technology in general. There's a lot of good things that can happen. So are you saying yeah, that, I this is really good. that I caused your, your yeah, accident? Yeah, I think you I caused it. Is <laughs> what I think happened. Yeah. Life life is not final destination. Although 2020, I think feels like final destination <laughs> yeah. in the movie. So yeah. what very few people also know is that you just had a, a tornado uh, affect your home. Oh my God. I know. Yeah. I mean, in my life, I balanced between uh, Manhattan, where Altic is human, the org that I run is based, and then also uh, living in, in Connecticut. And Connecticut got slammed with that storm. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I'm kind of giving up on 2020 and uh, yeah, knocked down a bunch of trees. So, hey, I'm uh, I'm actually I, I had to like call up my mom. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting at her house right now because I think I'm out of power for, for a week. So, hey, the bonus is that I, I get to see my mom more. So that's, no, that's uh, great. I, I'm going to. Yeah. Family is important. Yeah. You know? Family is important. And yeah. I got to say, your mom's bookcase is a pretty good bookcase. It looks looks really She's impressive. She's a reader. 
I got to say. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to get it through osmosis. My mom's uh, my, her brilliant. She's she's really good at her pursuit. She's a great reader. Uh, so, yeah, definitely a very thoughtful woman. Yeah, I feel like this is an 11 out of 10 on one of those rate my bookshelf Twitter accounts. <laughs> Uh, we can just submit I, it to you know see I, what they say. But I, I didn't I didn't scan what actual books are behind me, so hopefully there's nothing kind of like <laughs> embarrassing. But I think I think I think she's she's above board. It's gonna be so fun to talk to you, and I, I know we're gonna cut into so much of our time with just joking around with each other. What's really uh, also funny, uh, just to just to point this out too, is that the last time that David and I saw each other, it was days before the lockdown began and we recorded in as far as I know as yet to be earth show uh but it was a fantastic discussion it was supposed to be I loved it yeah yeah, it was like tech ethicist versus tech humanist although I think the versus did a lot of work in that statement because there's (laughs) very little versus that is actually coming coming up because uh when you reached out my way I said wait a minute Kate and I, we recorded a podcast together in, in March, and that's yeah. when everybody was doing the elbow bump. Remember, that was a thing for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we did that when we saw each other. Uh, but no, I guess it's being fine-tuned, so that's going to come out. So we'll, right. we'll, so we'll, we'll include see. that in show notes uh, for folks if you know if you yeah. want to check that out. Once, once that's live, I'll, I'll make sure lot. to circle back and include a link to that. You know, what's really interesting about you, David, is not only do you have this great tech ethics perspective and you're as you mentioned there's this levity uh Mm -hmm. that you know you complimented me on that but of course that's right back at you and of course this human-centric approach to what you do but you're also i think folks may not know that you're also an attorney and educator by background right like so so you're bringing so many perspectives yeah well i gotta say too something that doesn't get discussed a lot in the media is that there are actually a lot of attorneys involved in the responsible tech space so for example with my role with, with TikTok, i'm dealing with trust and safety content moderation types of teams the vast majority of people I interact with are, are attorneys. And one of the issues is, is sometimes when we think of attorneys, we think of it in terms of like, a, you can't do this, a compliance type of mentality. Right. However, when you really think about the law, one, the law is steeped in, in the concept of ethics, but two, it's also all about critical thinking. So when you think about your last conversation you had with an attorney, guess what they tend to do? They tend to think of worst case scenario. They tend to think of permutations. They say, well, okay, I see what you're trying to do, but here's how you could, this could go wrong. One of the reasons why we actually need more people like that in tech is because a lot of times a technologist would have a certain bias and everybody has bias, right? I have my own bias, but they would have a certain kind of bias to saying, okay, here's what I'm creating as a product and here's the intended use of it. Whereas a lot of the work that I try to do and try to bring is saying, Yes, we, we need to focus on the intended use, but also bring in the idea of the unintended consequences of it, the downstream impact, the negative externalities. So you do actually need some worst case scenario people in here. Because, for example, when you take a, a, a product like Twitter, Jack Dorsey has come out in, in recent years when we've seen how authoritarian governments have exploited the platform. And he said, well, you know, I, I kind of wish I designed this differently. In other words, it would have been beneficial to have other people who say, hey, I get how this can lead to the spread of democracy, but how would it be used by authoritarian governments who can utilize this to track uh, dissidents, political dissidents? How would this be used when the actual, uh, you know, authoritarian type of government is the one who's clamping down on speech? Uh, and, yeah. and that's something where we need to incorporate more ideas and more more voices. Yeah. How can this be weaponized? Right. Yes. That's the big yes. question across a lot of technology. And I think that's 
as I keep coming back to, and I know you, you must as well, is one of the reasons why it's so important to have diverse teams and diverse perspectives that are weighing in on the development of technology. Yeah. Well, that's the big thing, Kate, that I think we should always focus on is that we all have our limitations. And one of the mistakes that I want to kind of point out that I still see that it's happening right now is that we still focus on saying like, hey, how can we get Jack Dorsey to do a better job? How can we get Mark Zuckerberg to be more ethical? And yes, that's important. So you want those people in that position of power to be more ethical and responsible. But you also need to say it's not about one person. If from, from an American perspective, right, uh, that's very dangerous to have a consolidation of power. One person should not decide the fate of three billion people. Like that's antithetical to the very idea of what it means to be uh, an American, like that American kind of kind of experience. So I think a lot of uh, social media, let's say, uh, what it's going to do in the coming years is it's going to start – integrating itself into the social structures to actually say, like, how can we have representation? The quote that I'm kind of using lately is, uh, I like to say, no application without representation, right? <laughs> That's that, well, because think about it, like the, the phone that I'm carrying around in my pocket that impacts the people I interact with, it, it impacts the news that I get, which is really how I view the world. It's, it's altering the human condition. That is not like selling somebody tacos, right? That's not something that we normally say, this is a private company, they can do what they want, go to another taco stand. It's not, it's actually impacting how I see the world. That is so consequential. So my big, big pitch is that emerging technology, especially social media has such a profound impact on us on an individual uh, level and also societal that it behooves us to, to be more thoughtful about it and also incorporate more of society in this process. So if you're a social media company, there needs to be more transparency, there needs to be more involvement. We're starting to see uh, a push that that direction. Well, and it has become so entrenched in the political conversation, right? It, it's, it's now inextricable. The social media mm -hmm. platforms and politics are inextricable from one another in ways that they weren't even just a few years ago. We've entered, I think, the politics of technology. That's the phrase that I kind of think about is that Oftentimes we, we like to say, well, you know, our Congress, they're just not technical enough and they're, they're too old, right? Okay, yes, we, we want to have more tech, technical uh, expertise, but even as we saw with the recent antitrust hearing, well, guess what? The, our Congress now is more educated on these issues because they have a lot of, you know, talented advisors that are – some of them, some of them. <laughs> but the, the, the bigger point is that when you take a, an issue, let's say like um, facial recognition, that's not about understanding – what facial recognition is, it's right. about determining not only the reliability and, and bias behind it, but also whether or not we want to incorporate that into communities that are going to be impacted by it. So these are actually social problems. We, we like to frame them as technical issues. Oh, you know, it's a, it's a tech question. It's actually not. It's, it's a question of power and equity and access, equality. These are, these are classic issues. So a lot of what I think we, we need to do is incorporate the learnings that we've had throughout society in hundreds of years and and say wait these seem like new topics we're talking about social media but but uh they're not actually new topics they're they're about access and power it's almost like you could matrix out all the different facets of technology and then different facets of society and kind of mix and match and say, well, we need to make sure that tech and politics have you yes. know, the right kind of mixing and oversight. We need to make sure that tech and the economy have the right kind of mixing and oversight from a social justice perspective, from an equality perspective, mm -hmm. from you know, a, a, an ethics perspective and, and what we want the, the future of humanity to look like. 
Well, that's the big thing I, I'm starting to really uh, think about with social media platforms, because when you read a terms of service, you know, t- traditionally, any social media company is going to have the terms of service and then their community guidelines. And oftentimes when you read them, if you've actually gone through and said, hey, let me let me read what I agreed to, uh, it's, it's going to talk about these community standards and not offending the community standards. What I've really been kind of grappling with is we're assuming a lot, right? We're assuming that we understand the community. So I I think people are starting to push back on that idea a little bit and say, okay, well, if this is truly a community standard, then we actually need to understand what the community desires. Because at the end of the day, it's usually a a select few people who are making decisions in the name of community. And and I think a lot of what's going to have to happen is we're going to say, okay, well, what does the community actually think about these issues, right? So, and that's where it is the messiness of, of a democracy. We need to come up with a system that that understands it a little better. And I think we have to ask whether we're making the concept of community do a little too much work there in terms yes, of a platform, yes. right? Like right, community right. really is about some, on some level, a shared identity. And if you're talking about a platform that's supposed to host a wide variety of identities and a wide variety of discussions, it feels like, you know, maybe that's more of a, a, a more macro sense than what community community is meant to be the model or metaphor for. Yeah, well, and that's where a lot of people kind of use Reddit and subreddits as, a, as an example, where you almost have these micro communities that can have their own individual types of standards. And then within the umbrella of Reddit, you would have a thousand different standards. So that's kind of interesting, because I do think it, it's very difficult to come up with one one community standard because even if you look across different platforms like or even at any platform it, it's got people across geography across ages you know uh different different uh different backgrounds and that's going to influence what their expectation of inappropriate behavior is sure and then i think you know i, I think you sort of alluded to this in in uh, some conversation we had before the show began that you know, there's there's a concept in, in social justice about impact being more important mm, than intent, yes. right? And so I think when we talk about, you know, the nature of, of uh, community and content moderation, which I'd like to get into a little more, mm-hmm. it feels like we're really concerned far, we should be really more concerned with the impact on the humans who are part of right. those communities or part of the platform, who are experiencing what the platform is serving up to them. Well, we have to. And, and what's what's tricky about social media and speech online is we tend to apply our kind of free speech First Amendment uh, understanding of it. And one, this is complicated by the fact that social media companies are private companies. And if you, you know, in the Constitution, what the First Amendment actually applies to is what the government cannot do. So this is all tricky and it's getting into a lot of the issues with Trump and Twitter and, and, and issues like that. But but anyways, even if you take this First Amendment understanding, when you think about speech, and this is something that doesn't get pointed out enough, it's always actually a balance between a individualistic standpoint and a collectivist standpoint. And a classic example that everybody, most everybody knows, is we like to say you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. But let's back up that statement a little more. Nobody in the world is saying that you cannot yell fire. So when you say you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, and the crowded theater is very contextual, saying that, well, if you're yelling fire inside of a crowded theater, then it's going to have a foreseeable impact on the broader community to create chaos, which would lead to, to violence and, and injury. Therefore, we're going to weigh your right as a speaker to yell fire and then say, what's the impact of it, which then is going to overwhelm it and say, don't yell fire in a crowded theater. Again, nobody said you can't yell fire. 
totally different things. And what we're starting to see with social media is people oftentimes get confused because they say, well, wait a minute, this is this is my right. But the very idea of being in society means that you're constantly in a compromise of what you want to do versus what society determines, right? So like if you have, as an individual say, I want to be a nudist, right? You can think that, but, but if you start walking in your community without clothes on, uh, but maybe a mask, right? Hey, you're, you're, you're healthy that way, but, but you had no clothes on. 2020 appropriate here. 2020 appropriate. So, so you just have, you just have a mask on, but no clothes. Well, guess what? You're going to get in trouble because even though your individual right is being infringed on because it is right, because your determination of what is, is right, it still is balanced against uh, a community type of type of standard. So that's the, the tricky part with social media is if we're going to determine more of this community standard, it's going to have to be more on a uh, elected type of type of mentality. So, for example, we make our our laws based on saying like, OK, let's have a Congress that is the legislative branch and then the executive branch carries it out and the judicial branch interprets the law. And I think if you apply that to social media, people aren't talking about this now, but I think they will in that the problem that's actually happening that people get frustrated with with Facebook and Twitter and, and Snap and, and uh, TikTok is they say, well, wait a minute, you're creating a law. And then you're enforcing the law and you're interpreting the law that that's highly that's highly problematic in the sense that it, it creates a little bit of like reverse engineering. And that's why people a lot of times say, well, wait a minute, like, how are you treating you're treating people differently? Are you treating Trump differently than you would different than you would treat somebody else? And the reason why that's important is because when we think about free speech, we like to say that you, you cannot be arbitrary and capricious. Right. So so you have to treat like you and I have to be treated the same under the law. And if we're not, then the, then the law should be struck down. Likewise, people are starting to relate to social media laws as as being consequential to their life. And whereas we have not recognized them, we're saying, well, wait, it's just a social media company. Guess what? As soon as I uh, joined uh, TikTok's uh, Content Advisory Council, I got slammed with so many emails from from people who say, wait a minute, my account just got closed down. And I know everybody on the board is, is facing this. And and my takeaway from that was one, now my inbox is too full, but two <laughs> is, is that I said, wow, like this is really important to people. I mean, that's something we cannot forget is that every time we're making a decision, it's impacting somebody's ability to communicate. It's impacting their ability to connect with their friends. It's impacting, frankly, <clears throat> a lot of times their ability to, to to make money because a lot of people are making money on, on you know, influencer economy and stuff like that. So it's a big deal. So, so you can't be you can't be flippant about the fact that that social media companies have a lot of power. And I don't think, frankly, they want this power. But right now they have a lot of power and we're trying to decide how best to to structure that. So then the, the job of content moderation becomes really mm -hmm. complicated. And I think we, we've seen, you know, this evaluation of how that content moderation should be done in terms of what you just discussed, like the social rules and the law and how that's applied. But in terms of the actual tactics of how content moderation is done, in terms of human moderation versus AI and then human yeah. review, what are you seeing in terms of the trends there and, and how does it play out to have human moderators versus artificial intelligence in the process? Yeah. 
people have exaggerated the ability for AI to handle speech online. It frankly does not do a good job. It does a great job with like pornography, right? Because you can start training it on images and they have like Well, that's DNA. where it started. I it, think a lot of the content started, moderation right. really began yeah. there. With Microsoft, and that was actually a good example of where they had industry sharing. So Microsoft created this photo DNA system mm -hmm. uh, for for uh, child pornography and then shared it with the larger system because of its uh, major societal value for it. But with AI and speech, uh, it, it's very hard to do. So I think it can be helpful to to limit the amount of human exposure to violent activities, right? Because nobody should have to be looking through beheading videos. But right. but guess what? There are people who, frankly, usually don't get paid a lot of money who are sifting through the garbage, the sewer of the internet. We don't like to think about it because it's, it's very, it's very dour, but it's still, it's still something that is being done. So like all of this stuff that the worst, the worst that's going on, it's still usually somebody's job to, to actually say, okay, is this, is this inappropriate? Is this something that needs to be reported to, to, to the authorities? How do you, how do you get people involved? So it's always been a promise to have more AI involved with that, because then you would have less uh, less focus. But as we've seen in a lot of the reporting with uh, Casey Newton's The Verge, and then even before that with the researcher out of UCLA, who's done a lot of great work on this, Sarah T. Roberts, uh, on the really impact of it. Uh, and I know when, when I talk to, to people in that space, they, they have a lot of uh, methods for um, almost like, uh, I don't know, like mindfulness types of methods about how you deal mm -hmm. with the fact that you're seeing things that that no individual should should have to see. It can be very... Yeah, we shouldn't dramatic. have to see one of them, let alone over and over and oh. over, be subjected to that. Well, and, and that is why, that's why a lot of my focus has actually been on saying, okay, we, we tend to view it as human moderation versus AI. Mm -hmm. And... The reason why, and this doesn't get pointed out enough, but the reason why social media is is different than a media company is because if you're the Wall Street Journal, you filter and then you publish, which right. means you have a lot of control over what gets published. Whereas social media companies, because they've been so hyper-focused on the scalability of their, their product, they say, well, let's just publish and then filter. Mm -hmm. And then they use some of the community to help filter, and then they have a content moderation team mixed with human and, and AI. But where I'm obsessed with and something I'm, I'm, I'm writing about lately and doing some work on is that if we could incorporate a greater level of friction in the original process, you would you potentially could massively lower the amount of initial toxic behavior that gets pushed out into the system. Because we like to think of, and this is where you need psychologists, right? But because we like to think of the what's on social media as like humans are humans. And I would say that's completely and utterly not how, how this works because we're influenced by other people. We're influenced by our environment. So, and that's why we study like, what is, what does the text box say? Does it say like, say something nice or does it not say anything? If it doesn't say anything, you know, where's your brain go? So, what you're going to see over over time is more of a focus to say, can we lessen the initial bad behavior that goes out on, on the web? And if we could, then you would have less people who have to look at terrible behavior online uh, and then less dependence on, on AI systems. So, and less misinformation. I think, you know, unless, yes. you published well, an article recently yeah. about fr this idea of friction in technology. And uh, you had the example of uh, Instagram asking you, are you sure you want to post this? Which speaks to the, the 
first example, right, about cyberbullying and so on. But the the second one, the second example you gave was about Twitter having the introduction into the process of retweeting where, yeah. hey, it's like, do you want to read this before you right. retweet it? So yes. so misinformation is, is being slowed or potentially being slowed a little bit there, too. Well, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, because one of the things that, that I, I feel like we need to, to have a different analogy to is oftentimes we like to say that Twitter is a megaphone. And I would say that's not actually how it works. Twitter is not a megaphone for Trump or for, for other like heavy actors on social media platforms. It actually works more like a symphony where you have the one player who is a conductor and then you have all these other individuals who are playing instruments. A lot of times they're unknowingly adding to the, to the overall hmm. noise that, that a person has. So that's why if you're Twitter, you'd say, we want to prompt you to actually say, did you read this? Because even though you you say you, you care about you know misinformation and, and things like that, you might unintentionally be part of the, the, the larger issue, right? And this is where we're talking about the overall kind of health of the information ecosystem. Right. So that's gonna be, that's gonna be a major part because I bet you, you know, if you're the same way, uh, when, when you were growing up, you, you probably watched, uh, you know, like Jiminy Cricket. Remember the idea where you had Jiminy Cricket who was on your, your shoulder? Yeah. Right? Yes. So what was the idea? Like you had, you had the devil, you had the, the good, and you say, well, what, what do you think about this? The very concept there is, is supposed to be about reflection. And that reflection allows more time to, to consider if something is good or not. And frankly, that is something that is a part of all of, of law. When you think about criminal law, in any type, like follow any murder trial, they're always going to focus on the uh, actus reus and the mens rea, like the act and the mental state. And we like to say in law that there's, there's no thought police. And the idea behind there is that you don't want to be able to read somebody's brain because their brain is constantly filled with terrible thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that it only matters if they act upon that, like there's a concert between the action and their mental state. But where a lot of emerging technology is getting in the way of something we've known for hundreds of years is that the more you get closer to your, your actual initial impulse, mm -hmm. the worse it's going to be. I mean, it's, it's painfully obvious because your unfiltered brain is not what should be out on the internet. Like an example I, I, I always like to give uh, in, in like speaking and stuff is I say, well, imagine if I had a device where I could read everybody's thoughts here and people get really kind of like embarrassed as, oh my God, and then they kind of like snicker and like, well, wait a minute, like I probably thought like these terrible things that I should be arrested for, everybody has. And what a lot of uh, emerging technology is doing, especially if you talk about uh, brain to text, which is something, you know, Facebook mm -hmm. and others are working on, frankly, have made amazing kind of innovations on this, right. is that if you can get closer to your head, right, right, the less distance between head and said, the more problematic it's going to be. So yeah, I think brain detects there's going to be obviously a lot of fun issues with that because yeah, uh, yeah we, we don't want to be Mel Gibson and read somebody's, uh, no, somebody's no, brain, it, right? But I, I think it's or, also, you or know, maybe let's just cut it there. You don't want to be Mel Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be Mel Gibson. That's the <laughs> we'll end of the there. podcast. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting point. You know, brain to text is a, is a really compelling idea for an interface. And I think anyone can imagine what some of the potential there is on, on a good side. It seems like yeah. a, a lot of productivity, uh, but it's very, very easy to see where that can be weaponized and go wrong, of course. The other thing that I'm thinking about is that we know that predictive policing is increasingly mm -hmm. a field that's problematic and that we've had predictive analytics kind of tracking everything that we've been doing 
online and, and constructing these projected three-dimensional ideas of who we are and what our aspirations are mm -hmm. based on, on sort of targeted advertising, but now it's being taken into the realm of criminal justice and, and there's predictive policing that's playing out. Uh, and of course, that's disproportionately affecting communities of color. Uh, so when we think about brain to text and we think about those types of applications, those are for sure the applications where we're going to need to think about how that gets weaponized and what the yeah. impact of the experience of, on people is going to be. So that's a super important point. Well, and, and what I would love to say with that, too, is that brings up something that we're obviously both uh, very, very active in with this intersection between technology and humanity. And I think that the common question that it's actually getting at, which is something that people dramatically disagree about, is are we an algorithm? Or are we unique? I always joke, like, since I'm, I'm sitting right here in my mother's library, I can say this, right? <laughs> my mom always said, right, like I was a, a snowflake. I mean, you, I'm unique, right? There's, no, there's nothing like you. And uh, there is nothing is like that you, true? David Ryan but, 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 well, well, thank you. Thank you, Kate O'Neill. Uh, and, and by the way, you're the Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder. I always <laughs> think, what would David do when I go well, to post something? Well, that's why, you know, with so many speaking gigs canceled, uh, what I'm working on right now is a, a, a miniature, uh, David Ryan Polgar, that's about six inches tall. And then you you put it on your shoulder. That's and perfect. Then, and then you're going to be the first person. So you uh, you're going to have no idea how badly show. I've needed this. And then, you know, I have it with like an enlarged head. So it looks a little more comfortable. <laughs> and then you just put it on your shoulder. And then anytime you're having a bad thought, he says, well, no, no, no. David you know, so I, no. it's. Yeah. And then you pull the string on the back. It has a couple uh, catchphrases. But, but Distance anyways, from but, head to said, was that was that what you said earlier? <laughs> That's going to be one of the phrases. Well, like, but I think the other one is going to be, are you an algorithm or are you unique? unique? Because because when you mentioned predictive policing mm -hmm. and even when you think about, you know, Amazon and, and recommendations, it's it's thinking that your past is predicting your, your future mm -hmm. and that with enough data, we can, uh, you know, accurately d determine where your next step is, right? right? Or even with auto suggestion and things like that. What's getting tricky is, is, is that true or is it subtly going to be off? And yeah. then the other, other part that I always like to bring up, which frankly doesn't get enough attention in the media, is that with a lot of these auto suggestions based on our previous behavior, let's say like text, right? Mm -hmm. So like if, I, if I'm texting somebody, it, it's going to say, okay, this is how you want to end your, your statement. This is probably what you're going to say. Well, the question I always like to think about is how often am I influenced by what they, what they said I should say? So yeah. if, if I want to write like have a, and then it says great day. <laughs> well, maybe I was thinking great day, but maybe I was going to say, Good day, and that's subtly different, but it's it's also influencing kind of my my volition, right. and that's I think a larger larger question. Now we're being influenced by the very technology that's pushing us in a certain direction, and we like to think of it well, it's already based on you, but then but then that has a, a certain cyclical nature to actually almost like quantum human quantum. consciousness or something like <laughs> exactly like the exactly. moment you observe it, it's changed, right? This I, is I, why it's going to be a seven-hour discussion because yeah. now I, I think we brought up more questions <laughs> than uh, than answers. Well, you, you know, know I so. also want to point out. So uh, Lee Auden commented and asked, "Predictive policing, as in Minority Report?" And and I, I think there there may well be people who are watching who aren't aware of this trend of predictive policing. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that people are aware that you know we're we're not. 
speaking hyperbolically, like there are constructed algorithms that are looking across patterns of behavior and drawing lines to demographics and enforcing broken windows policing, but with algorithms mm -hmm. applied. So there's police departments that are deploying their units more based on what they expect is going to be happening. And of course, it, it disproportionately affects uh, communities of color and poorer neighborhoods. So wherever you see the police deployed more often, there are bound to be uh, enforcing more often. So you get things like, this is the term broken windows policing. Mm -hmm. If there's a broken window, you're gonna get arrested for that, or you're gonna get a ticket for, for something that other people wouldn't get a ticket for. White people driving down the street aren't gonna get pulled over for something that a black driver going down the street might get pulled over for. So it's a, it's a real concern and it's a, it's a real issue that uh, that's growing. So I'm, I'm yeah. really glad that Lee, you asked for that clarification because yeah. I think folks do need to know that, that that's really happening out there in amongst all of the other kind of algorithmic bias and predictive analytics kind of quagmire that we're dealing with that is happening as well. Yeah. Well, but I think the, the, the other part about predictive policing or just that larger kind of concept with it is one of the things that I've kind of noticed uh, with, with All Text Human is that there's a, a real frustration because people feel like they're being impacted by the technology on their communities before they have the ability to voice their concerns. So one of the things that I've kind of taken away from that is that really the frustration, and we like to call it tech lash, whatever, but the frustration that a lot of society feels is seemingly be between the gulf between how fast technology moves and how slow our consideration hmm. of technology moves. So that's why, you know, I like to say, hey, we're forming this accelerator for tech consideration because one of the traps that we oftentimes get into is we, we like to say, well, you can't slow down innovation. I mean, how many times have you heard that? Well, you yeah. can't do that. And it's true. Like you don't want to put a lot of hurdles in the way of an innovator, right? Because they want to be unchecked with, in terms of their innovation and creativity. Yeah. But, but you there again, we're a, making innovation do a lot of work as a word. Oh, true. <laughs> right? That's true. That is true. That is a very, very large catch-all mm -hmm. now. But I think the key part is to say, well, what if we could also speed up our ability to think about how this technology would be utilized? So before predictive policing, policing is happening in the communities, and now you're, you're, you know we're talking about that it is, we would need to say, okay, this needs to be in front of our, our, you know, our elected officials. We need to have a political conversation about these. Because again, these aren't technical issues. These are issues about what do we want? So this is where a lot of predictive policing and uh, uh, facial recognition, it's actually a two-part question because it's, it's one about making these systems more fair. Mm -hmm. But then it, the, the, the larger question before you even get to the fairness is, do we even want these these right. systems, right? Because you you could decide as a you know society that we said, well, no, this is something that we we don't want to have, and, and that's obviously happened with a lot of um, you know cities and facial recognition right now, saying Let, let's put it on pause till we really figure this out a little more. Yeah, there's technology itself, and then there's how it affects human experience, and that's kind of the underpinning of this show is to examine mm -hmm. how data and big data and technology, especially emerging technology impacts humanity at scale. And when you think about the deployment across society and all these different facets that you're talking about, politics and uh, how social experiences or experiences in community in, in neighborhoods, there's so many different facets for this. And it goes yeah. so far beyond what the technology is capable of. Believe me, technology is capable of so much right now. And I say, believe me to our audience. I know, of course, <laughs> you are very familiar. So I actually want to sort of steer there because you, you yeah. mentioned 
with yeah, all tech is human and, and mm-hmm. the uh, curating and accelerating all these mm-hmm. ideas. It strikes me that one of the things you and I have in common is that we are surrounding ourselves with people who are big thinkers in yeah, technology. Yeah. And so it's it's not just that we're thinking and speaking and working in the space, but that we are curators of the space mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I wonder in your work curating both Funny As Tech and All Tech is Human, what have been some of the ideas that you've encountered from some of your guests that have been the most mind-blowing or cool or that you m- might not have otherwise encountered? Well, actually, the the biggest thing, and and I, and I say this because this is like such my obsession lately, you know. So I'm trying to do more monotasking in life. The biggest takeaway that that I've learned just from kind of interacting with a lot of people is lately I have a lot of college and grad students who are reaching out because they want to get involved in the space. And I was having a conversation recently, and they said, "Well, you know, like, how did you how did you get involved in this space?" And I said, "Well." you know, kind of by like brute force, like, you know, I just kind of said this, this needs to be a thing and, and let's make it a thing over, over years. And then they, they kind of push back on that a little bit. And they said, well, that, that probably also a little bit of like privilege behind that, because, uh, you know, you assume that you could just make a space or do, do something or create your own kind of career. And I really took that to heart to say, mm-hmm. wow, you know, that is that is kind of kind of true. So uh, something I've been really kind of working on is like, well, then what does this space look like? How do people actually get involved? Because we're all saying, hey, we want more people who are, are thinking about responsible tech, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I noticed by having all these conversations is that people said, that sounds great. I'm excited. I, I you know, I see all this media coverage, but nowhere in there did they say, like, what are the jobs what what kind of school? What what are the skills that I that I need? Now you see all these like responsible innovation, like Facebook just announced this, and you see Salesforce, they've got a lot of humane tech and stuff like that that they're doing. And they say, okay, well, how do I how do I do that? And and one of the other things that I that I have learned over time is that so many people who are actually in those positions of, of power, you know, I'm having a conversation with them and they say, well, yeah, I kind of have like a funny background. It's not necessarily just a traditional tech background. And I said, you're perfect for this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because that is something that we need to, to emphasize over and over and over again, because the problem that is, is still yeah. occurring is that people think that they're not welcome. And I, and I, you know, I really want to emphasize that because technology is affecting the human condition right now, emerging technology, right? And social media. So we need the saints and the poets and the attorneys and the psychologists and the sociologists and the social workers. We need everybody because these are social problems. We frame them as technical issues and you want to solve the technical issues, but really these are social problems. Therefore, we actually need more social problem solvers. And then it's going to be like a, a hybrid. So, you know, I recently saw that like, uh, you know, a lot of organizations like AI for all, they're, they're focused on like, okay, how can we incorporate a broader degree of competence in certain areas? And I think that's the future is that you're going to have these hybrid types of careers. So to kind of fully answer your questions, like, I've learned from from a lot of people that uh, we need actual onboarding. Uh, that was like the big aha okay. is like, nobody has focused on onboarding people into the responsible tech ecosystem. Hmm. So uh, that's where that's what I'm trying to do with all human where you know, but not this like guide in September. And, 
it's going to focus on that to actually say like, here's somebody's education journey. Here's somebody who's getting a PhD in this right now. Here's somebody who, who works at Accenture or wherever, you know, is focused on AI ethics. And then here's job titles that are, that are coming up. Here's the organization. Here's, here's like 500 organizations in the space. Let's hear from them because we, we tend not to have the human side of it. We, we, you know, we, we have these like media stories around it, but nobody actually says like, how do I do that? We need to have, think about all the problems we have today. We need the 20-year-old the, the who's like excited about this to say, I have a path, that there's an actual pathway to, 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 be, uh, you know, to be involved. So, so basically, I'm just trying to like, you know, find all my replacements. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> oh, and that's great. I think that's so important. And I, I get asked that question a lot too. And there's there's never a good answer. So I'm, yeah. I'm just fascinated and excited that you're putting that together. I, my answer is often that, you know, whatever field you came up through is the field that you right, need to, right. to kind of come from in yep. order to do this. You just need to bring this well-rounded perspective that you have. And, and a lot of times it feels like the people that I know that have similar kinds of focus to, to you and, and to myself are coming out of user experience backgrounds or product yep. backgrounds. And that's wonderful. I think those are great holistic backgrounds within tech. But yes. of course, as you're saying, I think we need the humanist perspective from beyond tech as well. And it yeah. needs to overlap with that. Well, I mean, one of the big kind of classic points that happened, let's say, with social media uh, for this was a bunch of years ago, you know, you had this father whose whose daughter died and then he kept on seeing photos of his of his uh, deceased daughter. And it really bothered him because he said, well, I didn't I don't want to see this. But because we weren't thinking about the, the kind of impact of, of, of a, you know, seeing somebody, uh, somebody's loved one who's now deceased, we were just thinking like this happened a year ago, therefore I'm going to display this. And that's where like at Facebook at the time they had to hire their compassion team that they call it, mm -hmm. which since changed its name, but it, it really pointed out that the need to say, wait a minute, anything we're, we're working on. You mentioned some of the, the really interesting, but, uh, also kind of like hey, we're going to have a lot of issues, technology like brain computer interface. And then, you know, we didn't get to talk about virtual reality, but obviously with virtual reality and augmented reality and XR, uh, there's, there's a whole host of, of issues that, that are totally like unsolved right now. But that's also it's, it's scary, but also exciting. It's exciting yeah. because somebody listening to this right now could actually be the person who like really helps out and solves the problem. Yeah. And that's something that I think sometimes we forget. It's like, it's like the classic idea. It's like, somebody's gotta do this. So right now we have major issues that need to be solved. Somebody needs to solve these. We need more people who are like, let's get in the mud and let's have these, these important conversations. Yeah, I think it's really always important to, to be able yeah. to think about the full range of possibilities with tech or with anything and, and know that this could go really badly and also this could go really well and in yeah. my mind if once you see that range of possibilities it is your ethical obligation to work toward making it go really well you just right. have to plan out what do we have to do to make it go really well and avoid the really bad <laughs> well i remember when uh, clearview ai that was a cashmere hill uh, article in the new york times a few months back and that was that one that kind of presented a lot of problems with facial recognition and one of the i believe investors was was quoted in the piece and he said something akin to well, you know, it might lead to a dystopian future, but what can I do? And I said, well, that's the exact problem. That's so defeatist. Right. And, and one of the reasons why, we, you know, I named it uh, All Tech is Human is I wanted to put the agency back on us because this is not coming from the heavens. 
right? Anything that we create is usually within the larger structure of deciding what we want to incorporate in our society, what we want to allow, what we don't want to allow. Yeah. We should not forget, or we should not kind of like forget our responsibility behind this. The future is not written. If the future was written, then I would be riding around on my 3D printed Segway wearing my Google Glass that I bought with my cryptocurrency. But guess what? <laughs> guess what? We're using Skype. I think that was like invented in Estonia like 15 years ago, right? So the future is not written. We are the ones who are determining the future. Let's not forget that. Yeah, that's a that's why I have David and Polgar on my shoulder, <laughs> by the way, everyone. Yes, but can't I wait for that. You're <laughs> such an important point. Yeah. And I also think, you know, it's also good to be able to be optimistic about technologies and, and think about what the, the opportunity is while, as you say, you know, kind of containing the, the bad outcomes. So what is it that you are most optimistic about with the future of technology uh, or, or wow. the future yes. of human experiences that technology can provide? I mean, it's hard. Uh, it's obviously hard to find a silver lining with with everything going on. COVID, which is obviously a, you know a major major kind of emotional and and physical disaster for mm-hmm. for so many so many of us. But one thing that I, I do think it is causing is to say, what do we want from our technology? So, for example, over over the last couple of years, we've talked about like let's say a telepresence machine or or you know using robotics like Spot the Dog from Boston Dynamics. But now is actually a time where we need that stuff. Like if you had somebody's loved one in the hospital that you couldn't visit because because you would get sick, mm-hmm. that is actually a time where you would want a telepresence machine that is effectively like a robot that's got an iPad to it that would zip in there. A lot of these technologies can enhance these moments or can extract more, more value from it. So I think now is also a time where we're saying, okay, how can we then better align? The best and brightest of our generation should not be focused on getting us to click on an ad. It should be focused on improving humanity. And if there's one thing that's pointed out with 2020, as it's gone so far, it's that we have major societal issues. Yeah. But we also have the talent and you know expertise to solve some of these. And, and another area that, that I think should be focused on a, a little more is we are really missing out on human touch. And I think that, you know, if this continues for a couple months, it's really going to start impacting us. I mean, I frankly, I feel impacted by it because we, we need to hug one another. We need to we need to shake hands as, as, as Americans. And I know some people, you know, would disagree, but we need warmth. We need presence of, of somebody. And I would love it right now if, if there was a way that like we ended this this conversation and like we had some type of haptic feedback. Where like you could like pat me on the shoulder or something like that, <laughs> mm-hmm. because everybody right now is is an avatar. So I've got to I've got to have something to say like Kate, like you and I are, are friends. We know each other, right? So I want a greater connection with you mm-hmm. than than with any other video that I can watch online right now. Mm-hmm. You are more important than that other video, but right now it's still very very two dimensional, and I'm not feeling anything from you. And I think there's going to have to be a lot more focus on saying how can I feel this conversation more? Because I mean, listen, I mean, people are sick and tired right now of like not another Zoom call, you know. But if if there was some kind of feeling behind it, then you would say, okay, I feel nervous. Whereas right now you, you sometimes feel exhausted. Yeah. But if you felt nourished, like I felt somebody, then that that actually could be really powerful. Someone just shared, and I I, I uh, retweeted it, but someone shared with me on Twitter uh, 
a denim jacket. I think it was maybe Zara mm. or H&M or someone. I can't remember who was pushing it. Uh, but it was one of these devices where you wear the jacket and someone else wears the jacket. And if you tap the shoulder, it's going to tap the oh. shoulder of the person who's wearing the jacket. I don't know. But I see a lot of these kinds of things. Yes. And, you know, and yeah. gifting, like there's a, mm-hmm. a, a whole kind of trend in gifts that there's haptic and and sort of visual feedback like if i give you a device that sits on your table and i have one sitting on my table anytime Ah. i think of you if i just you know tap the device it lights up in your room and you're like oh kate's thinking of me that's nice right right there's a lot of promise for it Mm -hmm. because again we're not trying to replace humanity but we're trying to always do is no matter where you stand on an issue at the end of the day we're actually pretty basic we want more friends. We want, we want more love, right? They're actual base emotions. And, and I think COVID has really set that in, in motion to say, hey, we can disagree about a lot in life, but what we're trying to do is, is get more value, be happier as, as, as humans and be more fulfilled, right. be more kind of educated and like stimulated. And technology has a, a major role in that. And now it's about saying like, how can it be more focused on that as opposed to something that is more kind of extra- extractive in nature? That's wonderful. And as obviously, you know, as I would say, it would be about meaning and meaningful experiences. Yes. And that's, it that's what it's for me always comes back to is there a concept that it always comes back to for you is there kind of this one core theme that you always find yourself returning to well i think that's why i went with all tech is human because it it did come down to that because when i was thinking about like algorithm bias things of, of that nature it always would come down to say it's about our human agency it's about what we're going to allow this is not happening to us this is us we are part of the process. We are not just like magically watching something take place. And I think we oftentimes forget that. So yeah, for me, I always just would come back to say, hey, all tech is human. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to run run with that as an organization. Hey, if you're a brander, you might say that's a terrible idea. You got to put foundation or some, something like that in, in the name. But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to stick with it. I think it's great. Of course, you know, it's so similar to, to my own work. So I, I've always loved that we're, yeah. we're so aligned in that. You've been talking a lot about this idea that, you know, tech is not neutral. And we mm-hmm. quote Kim Creighton a lot on this show. It's, yes. you know, happened several times over the, the last few episodes that we've talked about Kim Creighton and her, her principles and tech is not neutral is one of those principles. Mm. So I want to make sure that folks are aware of the wonderful work and scholarship she's done and promoting yes. that no- notion. So, hey, what do you think that we could do in culture just in general to stand a better chance of bringing about the best futures with tech as opposed to the worst futures? Yeah, well, what we can do is actually get more involved in the process. One, I think that the part of the issue is we don't feel like we can, but we're going to have to demand that we are. And I think a lot of this, frankly, is going to come down to political involvement to say that we want we want these these conversations to 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 be happening. We don't want uh, it to be going in two different directions. We don't want something to be adopted and deployed, right? Before we've had a chance to actually say, what what do we actually desire? So that's the biggest part is that uh, everybody needs to to add their voice uh, because these are political issues. Uh, and right now, sometimes people think, well, I'm not a, I'm not a techie. Uh, guess what? I mean, listen, we're a, if you're if Karen not a smart All the more reason you know, we need we're to. A, we're, well, right. <laughs> exactly, we, we need everybody. So that's the, the biggest thing. And, and I say that because that's probably the most 
common misconception that, that happens all the time. You know, I, I had somebody the, the other day who, who said, yeah, you know, like with my background as social, like I didn't think that that I could get involved with something with like machine learning. And then they were like excited that this like, wait, there, there are these opportunities because technology is is much larger. So technology is society, right? So it's like, these are actual social issues. And I think once we start applying that, then we start saying, yeah, yeah, I can, I can get involved. And, and that's what we need to, to really do. I, I think as a society is like, get plugged in and be part of the process. How can people get involved with All Tech is Human or Funny oh, as yeah. Tech? How can people follow and support sure. what's going on there? Well, uh, if you want to get involved, I mean, I, I would say with, with All Tech is Human, you go to alltechishuman.org or, or write us at hello at alltechishuman.org. Uh, funniest Tech is just funniesttech.com. Obviously, we're doing the live shows on pause and, and, and just doing regular kind of podcast uh, recordings. But with All Tech is Human, a lot of opportunities to get involved. So even right now with this guide, we're, we've got, I think, about now 20, 25 collaborators all throughout the globe who are piecing together all these different organizations and job titles and doing interviews, things like that. So it's becoming a, a very kind of like global effort that we're looking for these different backgrounds. So for example, like we just added somebody uh, earlier today from the UK. And then, you know, she was looking at some of the raw material we had and said, hey, you forgot these three or four organizations. And it's like, that's exactly why we need all these different people because I'm not in the UK, right? Like yeah. you want all these people who say, wait, don't forget this part, you know? So we just got a few people from India and, and other locations. And that's what you need to basically say like, well, don't forget this perspective because that's something else I learned is, is I know when we were doing a, a talk recently for Altex Human on balancing, handling like misinformation versus like free expression, promoting free expression, you know, somebody from the UK said to me, well, that's kind of like a very American mm -hmm. idea, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the UK, we're going to balance that, that differently. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. We shouldn't, we shouldn't forget our limitations or our kind of bias that we're going to have. So anybody, no matter where you are, please, please get involved. Uh, and you can also kind of reach out to me. Yeah, honestly, on LinkedIn, I'm probably the most active. Uh, I'm not as good a, as you on, on Twitter, but yeah, I do. I am at Tech Ethicist. Uh, but yeah, you have do a great handle. That, that's easy to well, remember. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, although, like, people have a, a tough time saying the word ethicist. So I tend to get involved with uh, with with terms that that are tongue twisters. Like uh, I also started something before Altex Human called the Digital Citizenship Summit. And oftentimes I'd be on TV and the newscaster would say like the digital citizenship. Oh, my God. Like, come up with a better term, man. I mean, they didn't say the that. Part, DCS. But I don't know. I was I was reading their brain to text. And that's frankly what they're what they're saying to me. Like, get this clown off and, and like have them come up with better better it terms it was a short like distance they, from head to, to set say, in that case they, exactly yeah. they had to say digital citizenship and then they had to say tech ethicist they're like my god is this guy just giving me tongue twisters and then they had to say your name it's like how many oh, more yeah. syllables are you going to throw into this oh my well the, the, i'm see thank you for saying like the whole name i just didn't want a google ganger because there's another david polgar out there who does some some acting so i was like you know what i'm gonna do david ryan polgar but i've learned over the years that Social media is not made for the middle name. Like there's like nowhere on like, yeah. uh, let's say LinkedIn to even put your middle name and <laughs> people get very confused. I actually so, have thought of a doing a, a podcast that's just me interviewing all the other Kate O'Neill's out there because yes. <laughs> that was really screw with Google. But I, I love the fact that there's uh, Kate O'Neill, who's a, um, a professor affiliated with Berkeley, and she wrote a book last year called Waste. So she's a, a climate expert. 
And the, because I've done some work around tech and climate, we get confused all the time. <laughs> so, right. And then there's exactly. Kathy O'Neill who wrote uh, Weapons oh, yes. of Mass Destruction. Yes. So, you know, we get confused all the time. So I think it would just be really fun to do a show that is only me interviewing all the other similar <laughs> names out there. And it just creates more confusion. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so as far yeah, as confusion yeah. with you, you know, not, not confusing you, yeah. people can find you at David Ryan Polgar on LinkedIn, yes. at Tech okay. Ethicist on Twitter. Uh, also, you're uh, techethicist.com, right? I am. Okay. So I, I try to make it a little easier to, <laughs> to find me that way. <laughs> and hey, I had to block out the other David Polgar. So I own davidryanpolgar.com, techethicist.com, and davidryanpolgar.com. So it's like, that's modern modern life, man. You know, it's all about the URL. I think I buy about two URLs a week. I'm the same way. Like a like an idea pops in. You're like, this could be brilliant or this could be a terrible idea. Yeah. I don't know. We're 20 bucks. You, you know? might so, yeah. be a geek if you're registering yeah. two domains a week. We said this was going to go on for seven hours. Yeah. And now our audience is like, okay, you weren't kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you so much. Folks don't know, but we've known each other for years. We've yeah, yes. worked with each other's programs and we've been on each other's shows. And I just, I'm so grateful for your friendship and for the work that you do. So thank you so much for being on the show, well, David. Thank you, Kate. You know, you're, Kate O'Neill is always bringing the KO, always doing a <laughs> knockout job. And there's only one Kate O'Neill in my book. So uh, thank you for <laughs> doing such a great job with the Tech Humanist Show. And these are important conversations that, that people need to have. Absolutely. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being here to help have them. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.